Hare Krishna. So we are at a interesting place, beginning the fourth canto. And uh, my thought is to, we'll see how it goes, but to try to go a little quicker, not just to, to get through the Bhagavatam, but to um, keep the storyline fresh in our minds. If you go too slowly, you, you get so caught up in the purports, you sometimes forget kind of what's, you know, I, I don't think we could use the analogy of not seeing the forest and the trees because uh, the forest is beautiful and the trees are beautiful in this case. In this case. But um, to keep the storyline going as we're studying the philosophy, I think will be helpful. So we said we would begin with a little overview, and really, I, I'd like to keep it little because it's, the overview is really there in the first purport, right? Um, where Prabhupada says, he, first he offers his respectful obeisances to his spiritual master. Om Vishnupad Sri Srimad Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasati Goswami Prabhupada. He says, by his grace, we have finished three cantos already, and we are just trying to begin the fourth canto. By his divine grace, let us offer our respectful obeisances unto Lord Chaitanya. And then he pays obeisances to the six Goswamis, then to um, Radha and Krishna, and all the bridge basis. And then he says, in this fourth canto of Srimad Bhagavatam, there are 31 chapters. And all these chapters describe the secondary creation of Brahma and the Manu. So it's really um, a history also of the descendants of Swayambhuva Manu. The Supreme Lord himself um, does the real creation by agitating his material energy. And then by his order, Brahma, the first living creature in the universe, attempts to create the different planetary systems and their inhabitants, expanding the population through his progeny like Manu and other progenitors of living entities who work perpetually under the order of the Supreme Lord. So uh, then he says, in this first chapter of the fourth canto, um, there are descriptions of the three daughters of Swayambhuva Manu and their descendants. The next six chapters describe the sacrifice performed by King Daksha and how it was spoiled. Thereafter, the activities of Maharaj Dhruva are described in five chapters. Then in 11 chapters, the activities of King Prithu are described. And the, eight chapters, and the next eight chapters are devoted to the activities of the Pracheta kings. So there's your summary in a nutshell. <laughs> right, we don't need a whole hour and a half on the <laughs> summary. It's there. Um, but there's these sections, right? There's the Daksha Yagya, the sacrifice uh, performed by Daksha and all those interesting things, which we'll cover today, part of it. And then the whole thing about Dhruva Maharaj and then King Prithu. And then finally, the Prachetas and King Prachini Parhisat and all of that. Okay? Any questions on the overview? Do we? Oh, sure. You can read the, all of them. In the class? Well, we'll see because, like I said, I'm trying to also go quickly enough that we, we maintain the storyline. I did. The, did you, you didn't get the second email? Did a second email come out? Yes. There's a second email with a bunch of purports. Don't worry about it. <laughs> 
because I realize there's very few purports to read in the thank you Govind in the um, in the first chapter uh, a lot of thank you and then the second chapter is a, there's a number of them okay so we will begin so Maitreya is speaking to who Vidura right so there's all these conversations within conversations within conversations. And he said, Swayambhuvamana. So he uh, begot three daughters in his wife, Satarupa, and their names were Akuti, Devahuti, and uh, Prasuti. So we just heard about Devahuti, right? So we're not going to hear more about her. We're going to hear about these other two, the descendants of these other two daughters. Akut, Akuti had two brothers, but in spite of her brothers, King Swayambhuvamanu handed her over to Prajapati Ruchi on the condition that the son born of her be returned to Manu as his son. This he did in consultation with his wife, Satarupa. So, yeah, he, he had a premonition that um, Swayambhuva Manu did, that the child born of this union was going to be uh, an incarnation of Krishna. So he wanted, uh, he wanted him back, <laughs> basically. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? That yeah, and uh, it's also interesting that you know uh, that the uh, this tradition uh, the, of um, in Vedic times, but not only in Vedic times, but up until maybe a hundred, hundred and fifty years ago, you know, this idea of handing over a daughter, right? That is not something that we talk about too much today. A little, there's still arranged marriages in the world. But, you know, Prabhupada says it kind of off, off the cuff, handing over. But when you think about it, um, it's not something that would be, you know, very um, politically correct, at least in America today. Right? Oh, hey, I handed off my daughter to so-and-so to get married. You know, like, what? <laughs> you know? Um, but even, you know, like... Um, I'm trying to remember what that was. But even in, in uh, the medieval times in, in Europe, a lot of the mar- marriages, especially the bigger ones, they were arranged almost for political reasons, right? So-and-so, you know, you made peace with the aligning con- country, the country next to you, by having a marriage between them. And they were arranged marriages, you know. So um, it's... But it's just it's just interesting that as we even even now what forty three years of forty one years have passed since Prabhupada's last purports were written, and even in then language has changed a little bit, and um, to some extent, and uh, certainly worldviews have changed to some to you know pretty good extent in forty years, a lot happened, right, um, so. Uh, it's also so. Sometimes I, I think that we can help people who are reading Prabhupada's books to sometimes see beyond those little things that may what you know, they go like that because these books present the absolute truth. They present our relationship with Krishna. They present you know, um, and so we'll we'll talk about this also in another purport. So, it, but you know, a person reading Vedic literature and Srila Prabhupada's books in particular for the first time might get stuck on certain things. This is even a simple, what do you mean handed off? <laughs> you know, handed her. What to speak of uh, in few purports from, oh, the next purport actually, which we're going to study for this very reason. 
So to help people contextualize things. Because it's very, very, almost impossible to take norms, um, societal norms of a certain time, place, and circumstance and try to apply them to a different time, place, and circumstance. Right? They don't, you know, just like people are upset. What is it? Uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson had, slave, had slaves. Right? Now, I'm not saying it's good or bad, but my point is that let's say he was a very valiant person like he's portrayed, right? It was a different time, and to try to apply 2018 moral standards to that, and, you know, they don't necessarily match. Necessarily, right? So just it's just... It could, Contextualizing things is helpful. So let's look at the next purport. Ruchi, who was very powerful in his Brahminical qualifications and was appointed as one of the progenitors of the living entities, begot one son and one daughter by his wife, Akuti. So in the purport, Prabhupada writes, excuse me, therefore he is specifically mentioned as Brahma Barchasri, one who was born of a Brahmin father but does not act as a Brahmana is called in Vedic language a Brahma Bandhu and is calculated to be on the level of sudras and women. So let's listen, keep listening, don't leave the room. Thus, thus in the Bhagavatam we find that, that Mahabharata was specifically compiled by Vyasadeva for Sri Sudra Sam Brahma Bandhu. Sri means women, Sudra means the lower class of civilized human society, and Brahma Bandhu means persons who are born in families of Brahmanas but do not follow the rules and regulations carefully. All of these three classes are called less intelligent. They have no access to the study of the Vedas, which are specifically meant for persons who have acquired the Brahminical qualification. So if you just stop there, you might have a certain... You have to keep reading. This restriction is based not upon any secular distinction, but upon qualification. The Vedic literatures cannot be understood unless one has developed the Brahminical qualifications. It is regrettable, therefore, that persons who have no Brahminical qualification and have never been trained under a bona fide spiritual master nevertheless comment on Vedic literatures like the Srimad Bhagavatam and other Puranas, for such persons cannot deliver their real message. Ruchi was considered a first-class Brahmana, therefore he is mentioned here uh, as Brahma uh, Varchasri, one who has full prowess in Brahminical strength. So, so according to one's karma, one may be born into this body or that kind of body, right? And on one sense, okay, one sense Prabhupada is quoting here, Sri Sudra Sam uh, Brahma Bandhu. Another place Prabhupada quotes that saying, um, Kalo Sudra Samavan, that everyone, men, women, everybody, is born uh, a Sudra. And, and in Kali Yuga. Um, and point remembering, remembering all this, and whenever we hear about Varnashram is, in Daivi Varnashram, we're talking about by qualification. And someone can be a Sudra Vaishnava, a Chatriya Vaishnava, a Brahmin Vaishnava, a Vaishya Vaishnava, right? Um, uh, one can be, and even Srila Prabhupada says that the sincere, in the Bhagavad Gita, the sincere sweeper in the street, which is a Sudra job is is more exalted than the uh, charlatan meditator right so the point is 
that all of that these, even if we say it's a, it's not as high a birth as let's say a Brahmin birth, Sri Sudra Sam, if they get the qualifications, then those are not disqualifications, right? And Srila Prabhupada would say this many times about ladies in our society. He said that the, this, these kind of comments do not apply to them. They're, 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 Vaish, they're Brahmana, they're Brahmanese, right? They're Vaishnavas, Vaishnavis, right? So, so you have to put everything, in, he's talking about on one level, he's kind of talking on a Varnashram level, but then later, then he brings it around to the point that it's based on qualification. So just because you have the last name Sharma, or Trivedi, or Chaturvedi. Right? I know Chaturvedis in Vrindavan who are driving rickshaws, right? You know, so, you know, because those are, uh, for those not from India, those are Brahminical, those are names, last names that are usually applied to the Brahmin caste, right? Um, I know a lot of you, especially, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, that, and that was, that was such an important point for Srila Prabhupada. And, and to the extent that he would be so, one time, I think it was in Benares, he was with his Western disciples and someone was criticizing him. How can you give them Brahmin thread and make them sannyasis? And Prabhupada got very angry and just started quoting one verse after another, after another, after another to defeat that point. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you can't say in one sense a woman remains a woman, but not, you know, whether they're they're still a woman when they're a Vaishnavi, right? But they're, they're transcendent. They have transcended that uh, upadi, that designation, in, in terms of what's being referred to here. And when we say less intelligent, and there's different ways to interpret that, but uh, the one that I've always found the most satisfying is that um, there's a tendency. in the, the idea of less intelligent can be defined as the tendency to have our mind stronger than our intelligence. Now, my mind is definitely stronger than my intelligence often, you know, but that it may be one way to define less intelligent, right? That we allow our minds to overcome our intelligence. Like for us, we, especially people in this room, we come to the classes, we read Prabhupada's books. We know what's right, we know what's wrong. And still sometimes we do what's wrong. That's an example of the mind. That's an example of us practicing less intelligence. Yeah. Any thoughts on this? Uh, Andy, get away for a microphone. I think, uh, in my opinion, Prabhupada used that less intelligence as kind of like a device, right? Because you see people out on the beltway. None of them are driving really intelligently. Maybe you, it's hard to find them, right? They're all speeding. They're doing all kinds of things. So, you, yeah. So yeah. I, I don't think we. This is just my opinion. We have to be overly defensive about when he's translating. He can't leave parts out, right? He right. has to say what it said. Yeah. But the true understanding of it, it might be very difficult. Like, um, it's like if we tried to dress up in 1950s clothes and take a picture, right? Would you be con- would it look the same as a picture actually taken in the 1950s? So it's it's hard to relate to that, and he's trying to bring it to us. Yeah. But um, the other thing, until I saw the quote about the level of sudras and women right. before that, he had never made anything. He talked about birth and families, 
but he had, it didn't seem like male or female was any more than a flip of the coin. I mean, you don't know what you did in your past life. You, don't, you could have been a horrible we don't know man what we did in our past or, life. or a good woman. You know, you don't know. So it's almost like a 50-50. I was just thinking that myself. I'm, I was born in 1958. I was thinking, where was I in 1957 or 56? You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, good point. Jiva? Hare Krishna. So intelligence is so much contextual-based because, uh, you know, when we talk about folks to come to the temple to kind of like, you know, this is the holy dham, you should come and kind of like pray and purify yourself. Uh, sometimes it's very interesting that the same folks who are listening, they say, but Prabhupada was nicely settled in Vrindavan. He left Vrindavan to come to America. So there was something in America that he wanted to do. So <laughs> then that gives us next level of opportunity to say, yes, that's his intelligence. He wanted to get to the next step. He was fully mm -hmm. Krishna conscious. He wanted to bring that Krishna consciousness to America. You know, to drive, and when Andy Prabhu was talking about like people on interstate, an intelligent person say, "Why do I really have to be on interstate? How can I just avoid this travel?" But the preacher would actually go outside their, you know, comfort zone to see. Like Shri Prabhupada came all the way to America to deliver so many, you know, mm -hmm. uh, folks in America and then all over Europe. He spread it all around the world. He was not just keeping confined to himself. Mm -hmm. so, yes. Very good. And so this, uh, this is an important point about intelligence, because sometimes, you know, especially actually anywhere in the world, India as much as America, sometimes we consider, you know, intelligence is how well did you do on the IAS exam, right? Or on the SATs, right? Or ACTs, right? But this is a different definition of intelligence, that the tendency of how strong is, how, who wins out when there's a competition between the mind and the intelligence? That's one way to define intelligence, right? We know we're not supposed to, and do we, you know, I mean, it's, it's very less intelligent, for example, to smoke cigarettes, right? Because now the signs say, this will kill you, right? But the mind says that, you know, whatever. <laughs> Although I've noticed very big difference when I grew up in how many people smoke cigarettes in America. It seems much less. Overseas, I think it's still going strong. Because when my mom was um, of age, she, it, was, it was a social, it was like, you know, where uh, these days having a designer handbag or something, you know, or the latest haircut, smoking cigarettes was just, you had to do that to be sociable. It's, it's a little hard for us to even believe, understand that today, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's carry on. Um, text four. Of the two children... Born of Akuti, the male child was directly an incarnation of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, and his name was Yagya, which is another name of Lord Vishnu. The female child was a partial incarnation of Lakshmi, the goddess of fortune, the eternal consort of Lord Vishnu. Swayambhuvamanu very gladly brought home the beautiful boy named Yag, uh, Yagna. Is that a, how do you want to pronounce that? Yagya. Yag, Yagya. Yagya. And Ruchi, his son-in-law, kept with him his, the, the daughter, Dakshina. And Prabhupada writes in the, towards the end of the last paragraph. In the Yajurveda, there are different ritualistic prescriptions for performing yagnas. How's that? Is that all right? Okay. 
It's just, it's one of those words that everyone pronounces, you know, scholars have, have a certain way of pronouncing it. Like they'll say sannyasins, right? You know, they, yeah. Uh, and the beneficiary of such yagnas is the Supreme Lord Vishnu. Therefore, it is stated in Bhagavad Gita, Jagnartat Karmana, one should act, but one should perform one's prescribed duties only for the sake of yagna or Vishnu. If one does not act for the satisfaction of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, or if one does not perform devotional service, then there will be reactions to all one's activities. That's scary. It does not matter if the reaction is good or bad. If our activities are not dovetailed with the desire of the Supreme Lord, or if we, are not, or if we do not act in Krishna consciousness, then we shall be responsible, responsible for the results of all of our activities. There is always a reaction to every kind of action. But if actions are performed for yagna, there is no reaction. Thus, if one acts for yagna or the Supreme Personality of Godhead, one is not entangled in the material condition, for it is mentioned in the Vedas and also in Bhagavad Gita that the Vedas and the Vedic rituals are all meant for understanding the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Krishna. From the very beginning, one should try to act in Krishna consciousness that will free one from the reactions of material activities. So, um, this came up Yo, yesterday, uh, every Saturday, uh, Giri Govardhan Prabhu gives a class at uh, you know the regular Bhagavatam time, at quarter to eight, um, and he always prepares like a it's a thematic class, right? So yesterday, he was uh, talking. About, well, at one point that was made was that we have to um, we should do all of our activities for the pleasure of Krishna. He's making this point, actually. And then there won't be a reaction. Um, and then uh, Nandi Mukhi asked the question, well, how do you know what pleases Krishna? And he said two really nice things. He said, first of all, you know, God, Krishna is a person. So then you find out what that person likes and doesn't like. And then, then he said that you find out from people who know him well. What are his dislikes and likes? And then, of course, also in the scriptures. But just that whole idea of, you know, you know, waking up in the morning and thinking, okay, what can I do for the pleasure of Radha Madana Mohan today? That, you know, and if that could be there all day long, that's really good. That's, and then there's no reaction. Then Krishna takes it all. He takes responsibility for everything, right? Aham tam sarva papavyu. Right. Otherwise, we get this little like mixed thing, where sometimes we're uh, we're plugged into devotional service. Sometimes we take out the plug and we're on our own. <laughs> it seems you know that uh, we we go. That, that's anishtha sadhana bhakti, right? That's mentioned by Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur. Unsteady devotional service. So steadiness in devotional service is actually a very exalted platform because you're steadily engaged. You're not going on the platform, off the platform, on the platform, off the platform throughout the day. Some thoughts on this? One, two. Raghunanda and then Mahamantra. This reminds me of the chapter three where Lord Krishna says when the creation was made and into the creation he sent the living beings, the demigods, and Yagya. Yagya, yeah. Verse number nine, right? So... And the actions have definitely a reaction, but 
these activities that are performed for the pleasure and satisfaction of the supreme lord frees one from material yeah. bondage that's the power of bhakti um, i was just thinking like unless we perceive krishna as a person uh-huh it's very difficult to do activities for him <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> at least in the real devotional you can go through the motions yeah. you can go through the rituals four to the feet two to the two, seven around right what's for lunch <laughs> you know but yes that's the whole yeah that's right <laughs> consciousness when yeah yeah cuz we could be in front of the deities you know mangalarti sansarada and our mind is you know like we're not thinking the deities krishna yeah, we're just like elsewhere completely yes good All right so now we have to kind of put our seat belts on because we're going to be um reading a lot of verses. Okay? Oh well no we're actually going to read this next purport because it's about married interesting thing about married life. The lord of the ritualistic performance of yagna later married dakshina who was anxious to have the personality of god as her husband and in this wife the lord was also very much pleased to beget 12 children. So Prabhupad writes that an ideal husband and wife are generally called Lakshmi Narayan to compare them to the Lord and the goddess of fortune for it is significant that Lakshmi Narayan are forever happy as husband and wife. A wife should always remain satisfied with her husband and a husband should always remain satisfied with his wife. In Chanika shloka Chanika shlokas shloka the moral instructions of Chanika Pandit it is said that if a husband and wife are always satisfied with one another then the goddess of fortune automatically comes. In other words where there is no disagreement between husband and wife all material opulence is present and good children are born generally according to vedic civilization the wife is trained to be satisfied in all conditions and the husband according to vedic instructions is required to please the wife with sufficient food ornaments and clothing then if they are satisfied with their mutual dealings good children are born in this way the entire world can become peaceful but unfortunately in this age of kali There are no ideal husbands and wives. Therefore unwanted children are produced and there's no peace and prosperity in the present world. Um it it did remind me one time uh uh Bur- uh Srila Prabhupada was in Hong Kong visiting Burijan Prabhu and Jagatarini Mataji and uh Prabhupada was chastising Burijan Prabhu and Burijan Prabhu said well you know I I bought my wife some gold bangles you say in your purports that it's a husband's duty and Prabhupada said she is not interested in such things she's a devotee she's not interested in such things she you know basically she's transcended that <laughs> so uh interesting but yes we have so many things to uh fight about in this world so if we could try not to fight with our spouse that is a good thing and it, i'll later tell you the secret of not fighting with your wife it's easy you just do whatever she says <laughs> it's a piece of cake <laughs> works really well every time yes jiva tafabu hari krishna so should we take it that there should never be any conflict between husband and wife mm. husband and wife i think anyone who lives in close quarters with someone else there's going to be some friction sometime 
I used to travel in a van with two other brahmacharis. And, you know, we were living in a van, you know, so there was always something, you know, because it was, so, um, uh, the, in other places, Prabhupada says they shouldn't be taken seriously. Didn't, isn't it that he compares them to? Just tundering of the clouds. Yeah. Oh, okay. Or I thought it was of the thunder without yeah. lightning. Without, yeah. Or, yeah, or lightning without, without one, yeah. Without rain. Yeah, just, without rain. Yeah, yeah something like that. Rain. Yeah. Just, you know, they come, they go. Don't uh, dwell on them. I was listening to, I was listening to an interview with a very interesting person, Jimmy Carter, the 38th president of the United States, 39th, up there someplace. And, and a, a very, you know, interesting person and very devout person. He said every, every night bef um, they, were, they were asking him how he's been married 73 years. And so, they're asked, so the interviewer was asking what is the secret of a successful marriage. And he said, uh, never go to sleep angry with each other. Hey, now, can we get a chair and bring it here? Can you help to give class? Um, bring a chair for Prabhuji, put it here. And get another microphone for David Kananabu. Um, and uh, thank you, Govin. Uh, and he said that what he did, he, what for the last 50 years, last 50 years, he's had a practice of reading the Bible with his wife every night before they go to bed. Every night, last 50 years. So that might be a secret of success. You know, read the Bhagavatam together or something like that. Yeah. We never. We only did that when my when my wife was pregnant. We, my wife read the whole Bhagavatam to Gopinath in the, in the womb. So I don't know if he remembers any of it, but <laughs> the twelve boys born of Yagna and Daksha, Dakshina were named Tosha, Pratosha, Santosha, Bhadra, Shanti, Udashpati, uh, Udma, Kavi, Vibhu. Swana, Sudeva, and Rochana. During the time of Swayambhuvamanu, these sons all became the demigods collectively named as Tushita. Marichi became the head of the seven rishis, and Yagna uh, became the king of the demigods Indra. Swayambhuvamanu's two sons, Priyavrata and Uttanapad, became very powerful kings. They're very important names to remember for the rest of this in the next canto. Uh, and their sons and grandsons spread all over the three worlds during their period. Prabhu, would you join us? Is that okay? Yeah. Yeah, we're, I'm going to be going reading some verses. But then, matter of fact, what we'll do, I think, is we'll go, I'll give you the rest of it for homework, and we'll go to the second chapter, which has some really meaningful purports, and David Kinan and Prabhu uh, can comment on them. We'll, we'll do it together. And for those who don't know, David Kinan, who is a very close friend of mine, and... Um, an amazing servant of Srila Prabhupada. I'll be introducing him during the Sunday talk that he's giving today. Um, but, you know, I'll just say his most recent accomplishment, that he built an unbelievably beautiful temple and Goshala and guest house and everything in Kanpur. A beautiful place where there was no ISKCON activities 
And now there's huge ISKCON activities. Um, and and the, the uh, Heaven on Earth Project and Juhu, and he's the GBC uh, uh, Minister for, uh, for Finance and Fundraising, and I could go on and on. Um, but the interesting thing about Devakinandam Prabhu that is uh, that you don't see very much in ISKCON. So he has all these major, uh, managerial qualifications, fundraising and building new things, and he's a Sanskrit scholar. So he actually reads the stuff in the original Sanskrit. I can't do that. So he has this, this dual uh, <laughs> this dual humility also. <laughs> so we'll go to the second. We're on the, and it's interesting because he's speaking from the fourth canto today. We're just beginning the fourth canto. Yeah, he's going to speak about Dhruva Maharaj. So we're going to start on um, chapter two, okay? Because I had no other purports that I was going to read from in chapter one. Was... Yeah, go ahead. Is this uh, Visarga? Is this the secondary creation? Well, where... it, Prabhupada said that in the, in the first purport, right? But yeah, so I mean, that's what he said. He said, uh, do I have to find it? I just <laughs> skipped all the way ahead to, uh, hold on a second. Let's just read that one more time so we can. Yeah, the very first purport, Srila Prabhupada writes, in the fourth canto, there are 31 chapters, and all these chapters describe the secondary creation of Brahma um, by Brahma and the Manus. So secondary creation means Visarga, right? Yeah. Okay. So now we are beginning chapter two. This is a good conflict resolution chapter. <laughs> if anyone thinks that everyone in the Vedic times was all peaceful and shanti, shanti, they haven't read this. <laughs> Vidura inquired, why was Daksha, who, is, who was so affectionate towards his daughter, envious of Lord Shiva, who is the best among the gentle? Why did he neglect his daughter Sati? Uh, Sati? Purport, Prabhupada writes, Lord Shiva is described here as the best of the gentle because he is not envious of anyone. He is equal to all living entities and all other good qualities are present in his personality. The word Shiva means all auspicious. No one can be an enemy of Lord Shiva's for he is so peaceful and renounced that he does not even construct a house for his residence but lives underneath a tree always detached from all worldly things. You want to add anything about Lord Shiva? Say something about his peacefulness or his renunciation? And the word has been used here as Silvata Thresto. There are many devotees who had this gentle quality and silvata is, sila is internal thing, nothing to do with outside thing. Like inbuilt system, you can say. Mm. So sila is inbuilt system. I mean, there can be two brothers of same father, but you will see somebody from very childhood, born gentle, and other is a born ferocious. Although, you know, son of the Sila is something which is inbuilt system from the... So all the devotees of the Lord, they are Silvata. But Lord Shiva is Silvata Sreshto. 
you know, he the topmost or greatest among the Silvata. So see the combination of Lord Shiva who is like that and the daughter of Daksha Sati is Duhitra Vastalaha. You know, for her her being you know, mentioned that, you know, Daksha was so dear, I mean, she was so dear to him. Duhita Vassalaha. Like, Vassalta is a quality. Again, he has Vassalta, he has affection for all the children, but Sati was special. So, their quality has been described here. Lord Siva and and then why conflict started of this such a two great personality of Sati and Lord Shiva, such a great why Daksha took the fight. That one. That we'll get to. <laughs> Any thoughts, questions, comments? And just so you know, so we have about fifteen devotees here, but about two hundred listen to the recordings every week. So you're you'll be famous. You already are famous. I'll be famous because I have you as guest speaker. <laughs> Lord Shiva, the spiritual master of the entire world, is free from enmity, is a peaceful personality, and is always satisfied in himself. He is the greatest among the demigods. How is it possible that Daksha could be inimical towards such an auspicious personality? My dear Maitreya, to, put, uh, to part with one's life is very difficult. Would you kindly explain to me how such a son-in-law and father-in-law could quarrel so bitterly that the great goddess Sati could give up her life? The sage Maitreya said, In a former time, the leaders of the universal creation performed a great sacrifice in which all the great sages, philosophers, demigods, and fire gods assembled with their followers. When Daksha, the leader of the Prajapatis, entered that assembly, his personal bodily luster, as bright as the effulgence of the sun, uh, uh, as bright as yeah. the entire assembly was illuminated, and all the assembled personalities became insignificant in his presence. Influenced by his personal bodily luster, all the fire gods and other participants in that great assembly, with the exceptions of Lord Brahma and Lord Shiva, uh, gave up their own sitting places and stood in respect for Daksha. Daksha was adequately welcomed by the president of the great assembly, Lord Brahma. After offering Lord Brahma respect, Daksha, by the order of Brahma, properly took his seat. Before taking his seat, however, Daksha was very much offended to see Lord Shiva sitting and not showing him any respect. At that time, Daksha became greatly angry, and his, and his eyes glowing, he began to speak very strongly against Lord Shiva. All sages, brahmanas, and fire gods present, please hear me with attention, for I speak about the manners of gentle persons. I do not speak out of ignorance or envy. And in the last part of the purport, Srila Prabhupada writes, as far as envy is concerned, from the very beginning he was envious of Lord Shiva. Therefore he could not distinguish his own particular envy. Although he spoke like a man in ignorance, he wanted to cover his statements by saying that he was not speaking for impudent and envious reasons. Why was he envious? Just because he now for senses? Why was he envious? Why he was envious to Lord Shiva? He had said, Daksha was envious of Lord Shiva. Why was he envious of Lord Shiva? 
As far as envy is concerned, from the very beginning, he was envious of Lord Shiva. Yeah. Why was he envious? You're going to tell us, right? No. Oh. <laughs> well, yes, Andy, go ahead. Maybe, I'm just guessing, he thought Lord Shiva was a greater devotee, could never be that great. So he's envious of that ability, higher rank. I don't know. One thing I know, he yes. He was there anyway. He was greater than him. This is nothing that, you know, anyway, but anyway. Shiva? Microphone. Oh, you don't have a microphone. Go ahead. No, Brahma ordered that this marriage should take place. Achha. So it was against his will. But still, why he was envious? Okay, he could be hurt, he could be upset. But envy is something different. Mm. But then he doesn't be envious. You can be hurt, you will not talk to him, you will hate him. But envy is something different than... Well, but he didn't want to enjoy sati, so very question of being... Enviousness, jealousy, and other things also are kind of byproducts of pride. Of pride. pride. So, Daksha, we see that is proud, like from the beginning, like is proud. And when someone is proud, like there is one insecurity. Mm. And uh, that's that is the seed for, uh, you know, jealousy, enviousness, and... Mm. Are you okay with that? Kind of near. I, I'm, I'm <laughs> getting satisfied. But <laughs> I was also thinking that... Uh, and what he said, it was just symptom of envy. It's not enviousness. It was a symptom. Frustration, all these things. But enviousness, okay, the pride is one thing. Yes, that is inbuilt system. And he... he I, I always took this when I read I do not speak out of ignorance or envy. Usually when you say that, <laughs> yes, <laughs> because yes. you recognize that's, <laughs> that's what you're doing. You know? I always like when, when somebody, devotee or not devotee, says, well, to be honest with you. And then I say, so other times you're not honest with me? <laughs> you know, they begin a sentence to be honest with you. So he, yeah, he seems like uh, 
Yeah. Or he was, or he was at least anticipating that that's what they were going to think of him. So in anticipation of that criticism of him, he says, no, no, this is not for that reason. He was just defensive. Defensive, yeah. yeah. Preemptive, yes, preemptive. Okay, shall we continue? Okay, text number 10. Shiva has spoiled the name and fame of the governors of the universe and has polluted the path of gentle manners. Because he is shameless, he does not know how to act. And Srila Prabhupada writes, Daksha wanted to impress upon the minds of all the great sages assembled in that meeting that Shiva, being one of the demigods, had ruined the good reputations of all the demigods by his unmannerly behavior. The words used against Lord Shiva by Daksha can also be understood in a different way, in a good sense. Okay, and then, anyway, it goes, I won't read the whole thing to, for time, but he goes on, where is that in the Chaitanya Charitamrita also? When uh, you, there was a criticism of, uh, was it, oh, no, it was in the Krishna book? Well, you take, a, you take a word that, well, here, because here it says, uh, for example, um, he stated that Shiva is Yashogna, which means one who spoils name and fame. So this can also be interpreted to mean that he was so famous that his fame killed all other fame. So was that also with Shishupal, was it? That he would level uh, criticisms of yeah. Krishna, but actually you could take it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting how Sanskrit can be, you, you know, you think you're criticizing, <laughs> actually you're glorifying. Were you going to say something, Manoj? A microphone for Mataji. I was just going to say that even in Gaurdhan Leela, you know, like Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur gives the opposite meanings for everything, you know, when, um, you know, all these words are being <laughs> said. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, and there's it's, many other pastimes yeah, where Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur gives the opposite meaning of how actually Krishna is being glorified. Mm. Because Bhagavatam can't do anything but glorify Krishna. Uh. Yeah, Sanskrit is a language. If you break it, it has a different meaning. Combine it, it has a different meaning. So mostly breaking and combination. Can we turn his microphone up just a little bit to make sure the recording is strong? Because he speaks softly. He doesn't always speak softly. He's speaking softly now. I said that <laughs> Sanskrit is a language. If they're broken, it has a different meaning. Combined together, a different meaning. Not only that, each word has a meaning also in Sanskrit. Yeah. Yes, but now should we get a microphone for you? Because it's going to be hard if you talk and then it's not on the recording. You'll just have to get some exercise, Prabhu. Hare Krishna. So in uh, Krishna book, Srila Prabhupada writes that Mother Saraswati, she uses the same words to sing glories of Lord Krishna. Like when Jarasang is fighting, he's calling Naradhama. So, you know, he's saying it with the intention that you are the most fallen of all human beings. But Mother Saraswati changes the meaning by saying, you know, in front of him, all the Naras, all the, you Mm -hmm. know, and they are fallen. And we once found yes. this uh, in English. It was at a, uh, um, a disappearance day celebration for Srila Prabhupada. This is many years ago. And not to be critical of other Vaishnavas, that's not the point here, but uh, one of Srila Prabhupada's godbrothers said something like, uh, I also could have gone to the West, but uh, I did not have that mentality. And he meant, 
he meant that mentality was, you know, to be with maleches and low-class people. But we understood that, yes, he didn't have that mentality, that compassion for all living entities, and that love for Lord Chaitanya and Lord Nityananda. So it can also happen in English. Yeah. 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 He has already accepted himself as my subordinate by marrying my daughter in the presence of fire and brahmanas. He has married my daughter who is equal to Gayatri and has pretended to be just like an honest person. So um, what's, going, what's going on here is interesting um, because in other places it's said that Lord Shiva was absorbed in a meditative trance when Daksha entered the arena and therefore he did not rise. Because generally the etiquette so there's two etiquettes, right? Of course, on one level, by tattva, he's more powerful than daksha, right? He's, right? He's, he's, a, he's a Shiva tattva and everything. But then by relationship, he's the son-in-law, right? So you're supposed, anyone knows if you're a son-in-law that you're supposed to be respectful to your wife's father. Especially my wife's father was a general, so I was very respectful. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Yes, sir. <laughs> right. Um, but here, but so this, the reason I'm bringing this up is uh, we see this in, in many places in the Shastra, and I think we all experience it in day-to-day life, that we make assumptions about other people's intentions, and we don't always get those assumptions right. And so he was assuming Daksha wasn't, uh, Shiva wasn't standing up out of disrespect, in other places, it says that he was absorbed in a meditative trance, and he just was in another conscious state of consciousness, right? But he assumed, right? Or uh, can you think of other assumptions that are made in the Shastra? I thought he did offer a visense, but, you know, not uh, publicly. In, yeah, internally. You know, yeah, okay, internally. that's another statement. Yeah. Chitraketu, he made an assumption. What was his assumption? Oh, right. Mother Parvati made the assumption that he was laughing at... Yeah, right, right. What else? Uh-huh, right. Okay, so Mother Sita looking at Lakshan. Also in the Ramayan... Um, uh, the followers of Lord Ram, considering Vibhushana, like, oh, no, we don't want yes. him, right? Or um, you could even say Maharaj Prikshit and Samak Rishi, right? He was assuming that he was... So you see what happened. Kali Yuga started because of that, right? So you can make, you know, assumptions can lead to really... So a good lesson for us... Um, what is that? Vaishnavara Kriya Mudra, what's that verse? Vaishnavara Kriya Mudra Bhigyana Janeva. When learned people don't understand the mind of Vaishnava. Mm. So we, it's good, generally speaking, in the Sangha of Vaishnavas to give the benefit of the doubt. If you're driving along the highway and someone's weaving in and out of traffic, uh, think it's probably a man driving his pregnant wife to the hospital <laughs> instead of thinking some jerk, you know, who's some idiot. <laughs> right? You might as well make a positive assumption. So especially in the Sangha of Vaishnavas, Generally speaking, we should assume good intentions. Generally. Okay? Anything else on that?
Because for me, in my work, uh, both in ISKCON and outside of ISKCON, it's probably the number one cause of conflict is people uh, making assumptions and we, we would say in ISKCON speculations, right? And uh, what, oh, we even have that verse, what's that? Uh, if Lord Nityananda walks into a liquor store, yeah, right? Don't make, don't assume that he's going to get a drink, that he's going there to preach, right? <laughs> so be careful about assumptions. Or um, who was that really in Goralila, the follower of Lord Chaitanya, who was very, very, very opulent? Yeah, right. And, uh, and uh, who was it? Gadadar Pandit. At first he said, well, it was kind of sadhu. Why do you tell me to go to see him? And then he said, no. Then he quoted a Bhagavatam verse. Yeah, and then. Aho Yamastanakala Kota. Yeah. So there's so many warnings in the Shastra about not making assumptions about others. Yeah, and you can do it with people you know really well or people you've never met before. You, you can, assumptions happen all over the place. Yeah. Now this is terrible. He has eyes like a monkey's, yet he has married my daughter, whose eyes are just like those of a fawn. Nevertheless, he did not stand up to receive me, nor did he think it fit to welcome me with sweet words. I had no desire to give my daughter to this person who has broken all rules of civility. Because of not observing the required rules and regulations, he is impure. But I was obliged to hand over my daughter to him just as one teaches the message of the Vedas to a sudra. So the obligation you were saying was Lord Brahma? Yeah. Prabhupada writes, Sudra is forbid, forbidden to take lessons from the Vedas because a sudra, due to his unclean habits, is not worthy of to hear such instructions. The restriction, this restriction, that unless one has acquired the Brahminical qualifications, uh, one should not read the Vedic literatures, is like the restriction that a law student should not enter a law college unless he has been graduated from the lower grades. So again, that same point we were making before, that one can be elevated by qualification and by work, not by birth. That's not the point. Um, now, we could give, we give out Vedic literature to people of all kinds of backgrounds on book distribution, but we're not asking them to give Bhagavatam classes just yet. <laughs> right? <laughs> Anything else on that, Prabhu? Uh, I had a bitter experience once I was giving class on this verse and one devotee got up and said Prabhu we are not supposed to hear blaspheme uh -huh. you know, here we are hearing and talking about you know blaspheme of Lord Shiva who is the greatest of devotee so what he had to say that was his question I said well Sukhdev Goswami spoke <laughs> and we are following Parampara <laughs> So, if any karma, then he will take what can be. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> and I guess it's instructive, isn't yeah. it? That yes. And even for us, by making one assumption, of course, as, as David Kedanapu was saying, it's not just the one assumption. That was a symptom of a more deeply rooted thing in his heart. 
But still, by the, you know, at least externally, by making that one assumption, look at the mess he gets himself into. Look at the in future chapters. Right? Okay, so we're carrying on. He lives in... Here's some more blasphemy. See, he has something to say. Oh. Yes. I, I was just going to say that Shana Chakravarti Thakur says these words can be taken as praise also, like in this verse. And he says, because he's the very form of Supreme Brahman, no rituals need to be performed. No one is cleaner than he is. So he take, breaks the words, you know, differently. And he also says, seeing my own lack of qualification, I did not want to give my daughter, but I gave her. And that I'm unqualified like the Shudras who teach the Vedas. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah, so there you go. So it wasn't, yes. He lives in, a, in filthy places like crematoriums, and his companions are the ghosts and demons. Naked like a madman, sometimes laughing and sometimes crying, he smears crematorium ashes all over his body. He does not bathe regularly, and he ornaments his body with a garland of skulls and bones. Therefore, only in name is he Shiva, or auspicious. Actually, he is the most mad and inauspicious creature. Thus, he is very dear to crazy beings in the gross mode of ignorance, and he is their leader. On the request of Lord Brahma, as David Kananabhu reminded us, I handed over my chaste, my chaste daughter to him, although he is devoid of all cleanliness and his heart is filled with nasty things. And Prabhupada writes at the very end of the purport, in other words, he accused even Brahma of being less intelligent <laughs> because he had advised Daksha, thank you for doing that, to hand over his beautiful daughter to such a nasty fellow. In anger, one forgets everything. You ever had that experience? If you really are angry, you forget everything. And thus, Daksha, in anger, not only accused the great Lord Shiva, but criticized his own father, Lord Brahma, for his not, uh, for his not very astute advice that Daksha hand over his daughter to Lord Shiva. I wouldn't want to call Lord Brahma less intelligent. Right? Sometimes they say that his intelligence is as vast as his age is long. So, uh, yeah, Daksha's getting himself in a real difficult situation. Some thoughts, Prabhu? Yeah, I mean, for us to learn to not lose, like Lord Shiva has, sorry, Daksha has lost due to angry. I mean, there are two things. One is anger, another enviousness. Both have combined together, mm. and it brought him a big frustration. And all this wonderful word he is choosing to glorify Lord Shiva <laughs> is out of his frustration. Mm. Product of envy, envy and anger. Yeah, so so it's picking up on what Prabhuji just said, um, and this is a very practical thing. It's good to learn what works for us to cool ourselves down. If we feel anger, the mode of passion, the mode of ignorance especially are affecting us, what can we do to elevate us? You know, is it pick up our beads? Is it go to the temple and see the deities? Is it, uh, you know, take a walk? Srila Prabhupada took walks every morning, you know, and, and maybe a japa walk or something. But what, you know, be a little thoughtful. 
and notice when the modes are starting to get to us. Usually you can feel it even, um, it's not only here, it's also, it exhibits itself uh, in your body, right? You clench your fists or you grit your teeth or you, you feel your heart beating more rapidly or a pain in your stomach or something. You know, these, these symptoms externally and internally. And since these are great enemies, another purport we're going to read, uh, lust, anger, and greed are such enemies, it's good to recognize when the enemy is starting to grab hold of us. I have a question. I mean, we hear this thing that, you know, when one becomes angry, he loses all the senses, and he talks anything. So, like, apparently... He has knowledge that he, you know, he just doesn't have intelligence that time. Intelligence is not functioning. But knowledge he has, therefore he is using those kind of words, whatever word he is using, because he has knowledge of that word, but he doesn't have intelligence to not use that time. Right. If we have intelligence comes there, then no. So how does the intelligence we can apply, and what should we do? I mean, you did say we said, chant, come to have darshan, all this thing, but when really we get angry, <laughs> we lose. What should we do that time? Other thought? um, some thoughts? I'm practical. Just, yeah. I get angry a lot. No, he doesn't. <laughs> He's just saying that. <laughs> yes, Mataji? Prabhu, can I just express my little thoughts yeah. on this? Yes. So, not that I'm an expert on that or I don't get oh, don't, angry. Don't or say like, you know, what he was saying you know, <laughs> earlier. <laughs> okay, Prabhu. So, um, <clears throat> but um, what I'm finding over past several years, now that being with the devotees and constantly reading Prabhupada's purports and getting teachings and inspirations from other devotees, I, I'm getting better at that now with my anger management. <laughs> I, I don't have anger issues that much, but still... So, um, what I find is, if at all, at the time when uh, momentarily I have those uh, feelings of anger, if I try not to react to it, rather channel it by doing something, and preferably something around Krishna, or whether it is to just go straight and talk to Krishna in my altar, like, you know, express it out, that really helps. If I am outside, outdoors somewhere, around devotees, sometimes if you have your close friend close by, to talk to them also helps. So basically, devotee association is really paramount. But if we, we are not around devotees, we are elsewhere really in the middle of situation where, which is causing us anger. I, I really feel it is momentarily, it's not best to react to it and think about it and think what can be done next. Very good. Thank you. My mantra. On my way to Bloomington, I don't you got know, angry? No, oh. like I, I happened to have a conversation with a lady. Looks like she's famous, but I don't know who she is. Okay. Uh, when I asked, uh, she just smiled. She didn't say who she is. Uh huh. But she was bringing up a point, like, uh, when I was sharing... Hold the mic like that, yeah. Uh, ...about how to deal with a person who has this contradicting mentality all the time. 
he contradicts his own statements in the next sen- in the next sentence so so one thing she told is like it you know it may trigger anger in you you know mm-hmm. but when you recognize you're getting angry when you recognize you're getting that's the first step like oh i'm getting angry and then it's easy to brace for others you know uh, steps to diffuse the anger but if i don't recognize i'm getting angry then i may lose it that's from the well that's kind of like yeah that's kind of like when they say go to the balcony or go in a helicopter and look down at your life yeah. so self set by when you say i'm getting i'm getting angry you're you're observing right the observer is different than the person expressing so, the anger so exactly. that's helpful she, she used the word like you start observing rather than trying to react mm. to the other person very good and then the other point she one which is so beautiful he told us or like try to embrace a you know raising yourself in a non resistant way Mm-hmm. so i asked for because i didn't understand what does that mean like so you don't have to take on that energy you know like so take observe that it belongs to the other person and uh, you know well that's kind of like um give them Prabhup- some space when she the problem told peter burwash uh, don't be at don't be upset at the agent of your karma mm-hmm. so that's that's an interesting thing um some simple things also even in, in certain parts of the vedas the, the, there's description about how pranayama is connected with the mind so if one does some breathing exercises even in the movies in america right you'll say they'll say take a deep breath right because there's a connection between the breathing yeah. and the mind right we understand that from from ayurveda it also have to do with association of devotees mm. like you know if we associate people like braj bihari prabhu or somebody who never gets angry that can also help or some if there's somebody who is always angry then you kind of you know pick up from there we know some people like that <laughs> andy hope i'm not wrong this time again no. it's okay i think the anger is like a lower it's an animal function because mm-hmm. animals get angry but never wrongly it's when they need to fight or something but people can get had that animal nature come out wrongly right and it, you can take drugs and you will not get angry there's certain drugs you can take opiates you not only you won't get angry you won't worry but that shows that it's just massaging your body your your lower nature oh, so good. you have to use your upper nature to like you said get up on the balcony and look at what you're doing and say well that's just an animal reaction and anger also is often seen as a secondary um uh emotion because even in the third chapter of the bhagavad-gita krishna says kama esha krota esha right that when you're frustrated by not getting your desires fulfilled you become angry or if you um an example that i like to give if you're a parent and your child is supposed to be home by nine o'clock and they they come in at 11 o'clock right you you usually are very angry at them right but usually the first emotion is relief that they're safe and they're okay. Then so the secondary is or with that person who cuts you off in traffic, the first thing is usually fear and then comes anger. 
So Kama Esha, Krodha Esha, Rajagunas, that it's often a secondary emotion after a primary one. Shall we continue? Anyone angry that we go, keep going? Okay. So Maitreya is speaking, and he says, um, Thus, Daksha, seeing Lord Shiva sitting as if against him, uh, washed his hands and mouth and cursed him in the following words. We're on 18. Yeah. The demigods are eligible to share in the oblations of sacrifice, but Lord Shiva, who is the lowest of all the demigods, should not have a share. Um, Prabhupada writes, Lord Shiva is the greatest devotee of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, and it is not fitting for him to eat, eat or sit with materialistic persons like the demigods. Thus, the curse of Daksha was indirectly a blessing. There's another indirect, right? Uh, for Shiva would not have to eat or sit with other demigods who were too materialistic. Thoughts on that? See, I cheated. I've read all these verses ahead of time, so I have some things written down about them. But I was thinking of that verse, Asatsanga Tyag, yeah. E Vaishnavachar. Right? That uh, when Lord Chaitanya was asked, How can you recognize a devotee? He immediately said that they don't associate intimately with, non, with people who are not interested in Krishna consciousness, with non devotees. That doesn't, we give our association, we give our association all the time, right? I, when I was, I would be with, uh, sometimes spend weeks with Devaki Nandan Prabhu in Mumbai, and he would brave the Mumbai traffic, which is crazy, every day to give his association to people. Uh, so we give association, but in terms of taking association, Lord Chaitanya said, Asatsanga Tyag, that we, uh, so, and part of association, it says here, is eating with them. Yes. You know, because devotees ask me a lot. Okay, so you, work, you have a job, you work in the workplace. One of the things always happens when you go to work, at least in America, and I think in India also, is people ask you out for lunch. Let's go out to lunch together. So what do you do, right? So luckily right now in America, it's very, very easy to get salads. So I just have salad with some olive oil and some salt, and then no problem. I'll go to a vegan restaurant. <laughs> yes, I'll go to a vegan restaurant, right? Other thoughts on this point that uh, uh, it was a blessing? Yeah. And, and I think that happens in our life also. I'm sure we can all think of times in our life when we were going through something, it seemed really terrible, and then when we look back later, we saw that it was Krishna's blessing upon us. We didn't see it at the time, but we saw it later as Krishna's blessing. I'm sure we all have some experience or more than one experience like that in our life. Yeah. Here, of course, he was able to see it immediately as Krishna's. That, that's an advanced devotee. He doesn't have to wait six months or something to remember that it was Krishna's mercy, but immediately see something as Krishna's mercy. What's that verse? Tate. Tate Nukamba. Yeah. That's seeing Krishna's mercy, right, in yeah. adversarial situations. Yeah, just like even Lord Shiva, 
when like he saw Mohini, Mohini, uh-huh. and he lose his semen and all this thing, and immediately he distinguished himself from that situation, seeing it as a Lord mercy, and that point, Lord was so happy that he sighed. Mm. Yeah, so that's a great way to get the Lord's mercy is to see things as His mercy. Instead of saying, why is this happening to me? Oh, what did I do to deserve this? Well, what year were you born, Andy? 54. 54. So what were you doing in 1952? I think I was a king. You think you were a king? <laughs> uh, maybe. Or a microbe. I don't know. <laughs> no. <laughs> a microbe who, who had some prashadam or something. <laughs> yeah. Okay, text 19. Maitreya is continuing, and he says, My dear Vidura... In spite of the requests of all the members of the sacrificial assembly, Daksha, in great anger, cursed Lord Shiva and then left the assembly and went back to his home. And then Prabhupada writes, in the, towards the end of the purport, actually, we can see that lust, anger, and passion make a man crazy, even though he be as great as Daksha. The very name Daksha suggests that he was expert in all material activities, but still, because of his aversion, towards such a saintly personality as Shiva, he was attacked by these three enemies, anger, lust, and passion. Lord Chaitanya, therefore, advised that one be very careful not to offend Vaishnavas. He compared offenses towards a Vaishnava to a mad elephant. As a mad elephant can do anything horrible, so when a person offends a Vaishnava, he can perform any abominable activity. You, if you uh, go to YouTube, I think we talked about this a month or two ago, right? If you go to YouTube and you, um, I don't know, if you type in something like wild elephant or elephant attack or something like that, you'll see, especially there in South India, and you'll see elephants like ruining everything and they're picking up cars, you know, and, and people running hither and there. So imagine like a really nice garden. All right, remember, the, anyone been to the botanical gardens in downtown D.C.? Imagine if you brought an elephant in there and he just went crazy. The whole garden would just be completely finished. So that's what happens. That's, that's the example that Lord Chaitanya gave. So our biggest fear should not be death, should not be taxes. <laughs> should not be embarrassment, should not be anything other than offending a devotee of the Lord. That should be our biggest fear. Other things you want to say, David? No? It's okay? Yeah. I got it okay? I got it right? So far. <laughs> so far. <laughs> Some thoughts on this? Yes. Sandy. Hare Krishna Prabhu. I just want to ask... Um, the meaning of offense, <coughs> offender was Vaishnava. So how do we understand this? Okay. The meaning of offense. Well, as a devotee, we should be glorifying Vaishnava. But when we start offending somebody, when we develop envy, only with envy, we offend. You know, now offense can be of any kind. 
passing you word can also be your friends and using like what abusing somebody can also be offensive be disobedience can also be offensive offensing can be different but the root cause of offense is that envy as daksha has so when lord chaitanya is talking that we should be free from the offenses then one of the thing as narad muni was talking to dhruv maharaj that how we should be respectful to our senior we should be friendly to someone who is of our level and we should be compassionate to someone who is you know below us that is the really the symptom of a great devotee but someone who is enviousness then he will be talking something bad about the person who is above him he will try to suppress someone who is below him try to make him slave and he will show up with his peers hey i am better than you guys sign of envy nice any other points on this yep one second senior we should praise them we should praise them but the person who has enviousness for the senior he will do everything to pull him down hari krishna prabhu ji like you explain how we can recognize if it is offensive or not like suppose if you are suppressing the younger one and if you are showing our you know anything greatness to our you know peers then it is offensive just i want to know for seniors how we could know it is offensive <coughs> we should respect but if something happening but we are not aware so there will be some mark we all know what i am doing let's be honest we know what i am doing yeah yeah you know if some senior you are passing a pa- passing a remark on him oh, okay. out of you know anger or you know that that's envy yeah. but if if somewhere you see some senior doing something wrong according to you then go very nicely humbly you know tadvidhi pranipatena and you can bring to him and that senior may take it oh yeah this great you brought to my attention thank you very much you will appreciate that true true okay thank you so much prabhu ji okay all right we have a few more we have five more minutes mm. upon understanding that lord shiva had been cursed jai sri sri gornitai sita ram lakshman hanuman shri shri radha madan mohan ki jai upon understanding that lord shiva had been cursed nandishwara one of lord shiva's principal associates became greatly angry okay now it's it's all happening huh daksha jagya starts yes his eyes became red and he prepared to curse daksha and all the brahmanas present there who had tolerated daksha's cursing shiva in harsh words so not just lord so not just daksha also those who tolerated he was upset with prabhupad writes the entire issue was so complicated that those who were not strong enough forgot their positions and thus cursing and counter cursing went on in the great assembly so sometimes yeah conflicts can be like that you don't even know what started it 
but you just take sides and the cursing and the counter-cursing goes on. Anyone who has accepted Daksha as the most important personality and neglected Lord Shiva because of envy is less intelligent and because of visualizing in duality will be bereft of transcendental knowledge. Pretentious, pretentiously religious householder life in which one is attracted to material happiness and thus also attracted to the superficial explanation of the Vedas robs one of all intelligence and attaches one to fruit of activities as all in all. Daksha has accepted the body as all in all. Therefore, since he has forgotten the Vishnupada or Vishnugati and is attached to sex life only, within a short time he will have the face of a goat. Those who have become as dull as matter by cultivating materialistic education and intelligence are nesciently involved in fruitive activities. Such men have purposely insulted Lord Shiva. May they continue in the cycle of birth and death. Whew. May those who are envious of Lord Shiva be attracted by the flowery language of the enchanting Vedic promises who, uh, and who have thus become dull, always remain attached to fruit of activities. Now, some people might not mind these, that curse. <laughs> right? They're all going to be successful in the material world. These brahmanas take to education, austerity, and vows only for the purpose of maintaining the body. They shall be devoid of discrimination between what to eat and what not to eat. They will acquire money begging from door to door simply for the satisfaction of their body. And Prabhupada in the purport talks about how this is happening now in Kali Yuga. Uh, people have uh, a 50 paisa Brahmin thread, uh, but then they go and eat all kinds of things that Brahmins are not supposed to eat. <laughs> when all the inherit uh, hereditary Brahmanas were, were thus cursed by Nandeshwara, the sage Brighu, as a reaction, condemned the followers of Lord Shiva with this very strong Brahminical curse. One who takes one who takes a vow to satisfy Lord Shiva or who follows such principles will certainly become an atheist and be diverted from transcendental scriptural injunctions. And there in that purport, Prabhupada talks about Sankaracharya and uh, Mayavadis. Yeah. Those who vow to worship Lord Shiva are so foolish that they imitate him by keeping long hair on their heads. When initiated into worship of Lord Shiva, they prefer to live on wine, flesh, and other such things. A few more verses. Um, Brigu Muni continued, Since you blaspheme the Vedas and the Brahmanas who are followers uh, of the Vedic principles, it is understood that you have already taken shelter of the doctrine of atheism. The Vedas give the eternal regulative principles for auspicious advancement in human civilization, which have been rigidly followed in the past. The strong evidence of this principle is the Supreme Personality of God who is called Janardana, the well-wisher of all living entities. And in the purport, and this is probably the last purport we read, Prabhupada writes, uh, this, I just found this very interesting. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting angle on Varnashrama. It's, it's towards the end of the purport. He says, no one can stop the system of Varna and Ashram or castes and divisions. For example, whether or not one accepts the name Brahmana, there is a class in society which is known as the intelligent class. 
and which is interested in spiritual understanding and philosophy. Similarly, there is a class of men who are interested in administration and in ruling others. In the Vedic system, there are martially spirited men are called, these martially spirited men are called Kshatriyas. Similarly, everywhere there is a class of men who are interested in economic development, business, industry, and money making. They are called Vaishyas. And there is another class who are neither intelligent nor martially spirited nor endowed with a capacity for economic development, but who simply can serve others. They are called Sudras or the laborer class. This system is Sanatana. It comes from time immemorial and it will continue in the same way. There is no power in the world which can stop it. Therefore, this Sanatana Dharma system is eternal. One can elevate himself to the highest standard of spiritual life by following the Vedic principles. So it's just there. Whether you live 5,000 years ago or you live today, there's just people who fall into different categories. But all of them can become devotees. Raj, uh, microphone for Raj, please. No, I yeah, but this is being recorded, so we need to hear your transcendental voice. Yeah, what you uh, described was the classes yes. defined by Sanatana uh, many centuries ago. Yes. And now <clears throat> what's happening is uh, with the change, even in India, uh, that classification is disappearing. Yes, but his point, the point here is different. You work in an office building? Yes. Uh, is there anyone in the office building who um, takes out the garbage and cleans the rooms? Yes. Okay. Are there people who are uh, administrators there? True. Okay, so there you already have Varnashram in your office building, no, but, according to this purport. But my point is that in the U.S., a lot of people immigrate. And they come from other countries, yeah. they migrate here. Yes. They are doctors, they are engineers, where they're coming from. Right. And they cannot find the job right away. Uh. And they could be working. I, when I came, I started working as a bank teller. As a okay. bank teller? Yeah. Did that you, was a job did I you, Were you able to keep some of the profits? No, no. no I wish I could. But, <laughs> but the point is that... Uh, you know, the job you are doing is yes. for survival. Yes. And, and, and the thing is that if we classify people by what they do and box them in that class, uh, it's not fair. True. It, well, true. Um, it's more what, what is one's inclination or nature rather than, like, like in also our Srila Prabhupada would also talk about one can do other jobs, other work in emergencies, right? So you had an emer you had, you didn't have, you know, the kind of job that you have today. So you had to be a bank teller, you know. But the real point is of Varnashram is uh, that when one accepts one's nature, first of all, usually, we're what we like to do. We're also good at. So that's good. If everyone's doing according to their nature what they're good at, that helps society. But also, instead of everyone wanting to be a doctor or a lawyer, right, you know, being satisfied with where we're at and then using all that energy instead of climbing the quote-unquote ladder of success to use for spiritual practices. So as I said earlier, any of the four uh, so-called castes can go back to the spiritual world. 
okay. and could be great bystanders. Do you want to add to that, David? No? no. Okay, so we're, time you. is uh, up. Uh, and we're very thankful to have His Grace David Kinnanan Prabhu with us this week. And please stay for the uh, Sunday Open House talk about Dhruva Maharaj. And uh, I will, we will finish this chapter. We're almost done. So the homework assignment is to read all those verses that we didn't read in the first chapter. Just read the verses. And then I'll send an email out about uh, the next chapter, which is a discussion between Lord Shiva and his wife. Very, very interesting it's very hard to fall asleep reading this part of the Bhagavatam. It's, uh, it's very exciting, all the curses and counter-curses and stuff like that. Hare Krishna, all glories to Srila Prabhupada.